Have you ever wondered what happened to the legendary Chuck Norris? I recently saw a health video he made and I was surprised. He's in his 80s and still seems to have his energy and health. He says he's even stronger, has more stamina, and plenty of energy left over for his grandkids since making one simple health change that helps his digestion and nutrition. He says he still feels like he's in his 50s. His wife made the same change and she's never felt better. She says she feels 10 years younger and she has energy all day. Many of us do not include the fruits, vegetables, and other herbs that increase health and energy in our own diets. Chuck Norris made a special video that explains how he incorporated these things with one simple product. You can watch it by going to mymorningkick.com forward slash Harris. It may change your approach to your own health. Once again, that's mymorningkick.com forward slash Harris. We are live now on the Conversations That Matter podcast. I hope you're doing well. It is a beautiful fall-ish, it's getting fall day uh, in my neck of the woods. I hope that uh, you're enjoying the seasonal change wherever you are, unless you're in Arizona or New Mexico or Southern California or Texas, in which case, I guess it's just the same as it's always been. Uh, We have a lot of things to talk about. I don't think we're going to get to all the things. Uh, In fact, I I just saw that... uh, Someone, <laughs> Squidward, okay, Squidward, um, wants to talk about or wants me to talk about the uh, the Rufo space from last night. And what he's referring to there is there was a, a discussion. It was very long. I didn't listen to all of it, but I listened to enough of it. I probably listened to, I would say, at least an hour of it, if not more, uh, on the no enemies to the right concept. And I don't really have much to say right now, except, wow. Um, it just it amazes me. We're going to get into some diff- a different issue, but still kind of related in this sense. It amazes me the way that people are so comfortable misrepresenting and they just don't have a self-awareness about it. It, it, it was the whole thing was an exercise. It seemed to me at least. And you had um, two individuals who were very critical of no enemies to the right. But what they were actually critical of was their I, their conception of what that meant. Like it wasn't actually a critique of what Charles Haywood and Nate Fisher were advocating with no enemies to the right. It was a critique of something else. Uh, and, you know, I, I think I outlined it on Twitter this morning that um, either the critiques are that this can't be a universal rule. Well, of course it's not. It's the the concept is only uh, only fits in a situation in which. The left controls rewards and punishments and has political power, ultimate political power. It doesn't really work in another situation. That That's the situation, though, we are finding ourselves in. I compared it to a prison camp. If you're in a prison camp, let's say in East Germany or the Soviet Union, you could pick Nazi Germany if you wanted, whatever. And you're you're in, in this scenario where you have no power. Right. And there's other prisoners there along with you. And let's say you have disagreements, intramural disagreements with them about various things, how to handle the situation you're in, what strategies to use to try to push back, that kind of thing. And you don't agree with some of the strategies you hear. You know, it would be um, it wouldn't be wise to then go just rat out your your buddies. I mean, there's so many problems with it. It'll obviously cause you to lose respect and break trust and fracture your side. But it also increases the authority, the fear that comes with the um, the 
ability of those who are your overlords to oversee you even better, to control you even more. It increases their power, essentially, is what that does. And so in a situation like that, the goal should be to work together, even if you have some disagreements. And if you can't work together, then, you know, kind of let let the other let, let people who disagree with you do what they're going to do. Maybe you don't want them influencing what you're going to do. So you have your your own group, your own um, uh, opposition unit or whatever. Maybe, you know, I don't know, you're digging a tunnel or do, doing something that another group has a different idea on. They, they want to uh, oppose the, the guards in a different way. But the point is, in, in this scenario, um, it, it would be foolhardy to fracture among yourselves and start doing purity tests that are designed to, and this is the key thing, uh, make in the framing of the prison guards and the framing of your overlords, make you a pariah so that your life is destroyed, so that the guards come down on you, so that you use a hammer that you don't actually control, someone else does, who's your enemy, who will also willingly bring it down on you. You uh, allow your enemies in, in the prison to experience that kind of destruction. Uh, and, and it's, uh, you know, it's because, well, it benefits you or something that that's, that's what we're talking about when, when we talk about no enemies to the right. So anyway, I didn't want to get into it more than that, but, but that, th those are some of the objections they are kind of weird to me. Um, so, so that's one of them, you know, it's universal. Another one is, uh, that, well, we, we should be able to critique people on the right. Yeah, of course. No one's saying that you shouldn't, right? We should be able to keep them out of our movement. Okay. Yeah. No, one's really saying that you, you can't do those things. The, the only no enemies to the right is primarily about this uh, a scenario that I just explained where you're not going to expose someone publicly to to the left or at least you're not on, on purpose trying to get the framing of the left to come down on them so that they get canceled, lose their ability to provide for their families and that kind of thing. And I know people who have gone through that and it's not pretty. So you actually build up more trust. You make your movement stronger. Um, when the critiques are, uh, I would say more respectful and uh, when you're keeping it more in house as much as possible. In fact, a good example of this is something I just did recently. I wrote a piece for American reformer and I critiqued, uh, the Nazis. And it, the point of the piece was that conservatives today are using a leftist framework to critique Nazis and they're expanding it to the point that George Washington now would qualify as a proto-Nazi. It's kind of pathetic. But I, I, I give a critique uh, that is an older critique of um, the Nazi regime from people who are closer to the situation, Bavarian Christians, and then also American, Anglo-American conservatives in the 1950s. And their critique was different. They critiqued the ideological component of it, how it perverted things like love for people in place and how it, it didn't really it was a lie. That was a slogan that didn't really mean anything. Um, blood and soil, at least that was that was a kind of a meaningless slogan in a way. And so their critique was that this was. Um, this was statism masking as something that seems natural and good, but it's not natural and good. It's it's actually uh, flattening the entirety of the national identity into this, this state regime kind of thing. So anyway, there's more that could be said, but that was one of the critiques. And um, and yeah, I, I do know of of someone who um, would, you know, I would say they, they are going in a more radical. I don't know even know what word to use far right, radical right. But they're going in a direction that would be maybe softening on, you know, maybe the Nazis weren't as bad as we thought kind of thing. And, and I understand that to an extent because the everything the left vilifies, you find out later, it seems like, wait a minute, you know, I wasn't being told the whole truth. So you start assuming that about everything. Well, th this individual is going that direction and they love my article. And I think it really did help pull them back in a sense 
and see, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> no, that's not conservative at all. So so anyway, that all that to say, there's fair amount of critique that can happen. It's it's just the idea that there is an enemy. This is on a political level. This isn't spiritual um, necessarily. There's there's obviously connections, but this is a political battle and it's it's war. Essentially, you, you have people who want to destroy your lives and they want to destroy not just your life, but the life lives of other people. It's better to use your resources to fight that enemy. That's the threat. Right. And, and, and it just makes sense to me. But that whole thing was, man, that thing. I, I don't even know if I'd recommend people listen to it. I know Charles Hayward was saying, go listen to it. It's like two and a half hours and, and maybe it'll it, it'll help you understand it more. But man. Um, so so uh, anyway, we start the podcast with a bang uh, this afternoon talking about an issue I wasn't actually planning on talking about. But now you have my as my wife calls in my file on the uh, situation. Uh, A.D. Robles is here. Hey, A.D. Good to see you. Uh, we got uh, Arthur Dunn. Hello, Arthur. Good to see you. Tim Miller says, uh, you know uh, what religion they practice if they're more offended by an insensitive comment about a minority group than they are about blasphemy. These people aren't Christians. I'm assuming he's talking about some of the people we might be talking about here soon in the podcast. Uh, and he also asks, you know, what are these conservatives conserving? These people would be considered hard left wing by anyone 10 years ago. It's true that the, the right looks more like the left. And it's happening in an increasing space. We've traced some of that. But anyway, I, I have something uh, more specific I want to share with you. As many of you know, I was away for the weekend. I was at a men's retreat and I was the organizer. Not only was I the organizer, I ran the PowerPoints and I did the uh, the video recordings of, of which I think three of them, I, I didn't even realize the mic was on mute. So I'm, I'm already thinking through ways next year to have other people take some of these responsibilities. But I was handling check-in. I was, I was doing everything. So I was busy, just to, to put it mildly. And, um, and, and this is, you know, like a year ago, this was my church retreat, right? We never recorded stuff. It was kind of loose and, and just, well, now it's, we're getting to the point now. I think we keep doing this we're, we have people coming from all over and, uh, this is a thing. This is, this is bigger than just my individual church. And so, um, anyway, we're going to be discussing next week what to do about that. And, um, and, and that's all good, but because I was away, I didn't, I didn't have a chance to, uh, talk about the things that were happening in real time. You had uh, the G3 conference going on and it seems like there was another development like every day uh, someone would be sending me a tweet or a, a, a talk or something that they wanted me to listen to and uh, comment on. And, and um, I just couldn't. And, uh, and I'm kind of glad I couldn't, to be honest with you, because hopefully people have simmered down a little, maybe, maybe cooler heads uh, prevail uh, when, when, when you have a few days. But uh, yeah, I mean, there, there are, I, there, there's nothing that surprised me. I should say that first. There's nothing that surprised me that happened. I'm not like shocked. Uh, this was all predicted. Um, we, we kind of knew what was going to happen before it happened because it had already been happening on, on social media. So you didn't really need a, uh, you didn't need to be a prophet or a son of a prophet. So, um, so, so anyway, the title of the video is uh, maybe a little intentionally provocative <laughs> and I, I do want to keep within that theme. I do think that evangelicals uh, today, neo-evangelicals we're really talking about. I'm not talking about the theology of evangelicalism, like the Bebbington quadrilateral. I'm talking about uh, even the evangelical industry. The evangelical industry, the people who manage that, tend to be obsessed with anti-racism. And of course, I can say that because I've written two books on it, essentially. And I've, I've traced some of this. I've 
gone back and I've, I've looked at the strains of evangelicalism that were obsessed with this from back even in the late 60s, early 70s, and how uh, that's become now mainstream uh, today with people like David Platt and Matt Chandler and others. Um, I would even put John Piper in this category, to be quite honest with you. Some of the people that are considered more moderate and you know they're not woke and, and they still have somewhat of an obsession with being anti-racist, making sure everyone knows they're not racist, qualifying every remark that could be considered insensitive so that uh, people know that that's not what they really believe. And, and I don't think there's anything innately wrong with qualifying your remarks at all. But it's the attempt, though, and, and here's where, and I could probably pull out many examples, and um, I don't know that this podcast is for this purpose, but I think the purpose, though, of qualifying many of these things is to fit within a, a framework that's been developed and brought to us by the left. And, and, and this does relate to the no enemies to the right thing, I, I suppose, to an extent. Do you want to adopt the left's framing is the real question. Do you want to live within the boundaries of what they consider acceptable and give them the authority to set those parameters? That's really the question. And, and we do this on a number of topics, right? It's not just obviously race. Race is just one topic of many, but we certainly do do it on this topic. And I think evangelicals, new evangelicals in particular, have a greater weakness on this than they do on other topics. Um, for example, say, you know, adopting the left's framework on uh, gender, sex, that kind of thing. That's, I, I would, I, I assume... And I think it's a right assumption that evangelical leaders do somewhat adopt that framing, but it's much more likely that they'll push back on it at times, at certain in certain moments. And there are figures who have built their platforms off of doing that, and they've been fairly successful. Uh, it, it's to, to be anti-feminist is not necessarily as bad as to be against anti-racism, for example, right? And And so anyway, we're using terms that, if you watch the podcast, you know what I'm talking about. Some of you who are new may not. And so it's important for me to probably at least give you some of an understanding of what I'm talking about. When I talk about anti-racism, I'm, I'm thinking of it um, not just in the Kendi fashion, right, where it's, it's basically critical race theory. And in order to be anti-racist, you must uh, you, you must take down these oppressive structures that exist. Sometimes they're invisible essentially, but they certainly do exist. And the proof is that there's disparities. And so, right. So that's, a, that's a form an aggressive form of anti-racism, but I think there's milder forms of it out there. Um, if, you know, one of the, let me, let me just pick a very baseline form of this. This is like, I would say your normie normies in, in the church would resonate with most of this. But if, if your first reaction, let's say, when you see a problem. Let's say there, there's a problem like right now in Philadelphia, there's a problem, right? There's there's mass crime. Um, there's just, I mean, they're looting Apple stores, the people, the criminals, they're they're going into uh, the stores and just I mean, the, the police can't there's it's anarchy. You know, the videos are out there on Twitter and, and social media right now. And of course, you know, the, the people who live there, the people who are uh, fomenting these things, they happen to look a certain way. They happen to be uh, generally younger and they happen to mostly be male <laughs> and they happen to mostly be black. And um, and that, that's those are the demographics of of the area of Philadelphia, I'm assuming, where this is taking place. Now, if the first instinct someone has when they look at that is to immediately be be very uncomfortable 
with the visuals, with the optics that you're seeing. No commentary has happened. Of course, the, the mainstream is getting <laughs> mainstream is putting out articles on uh, juveniles and how juveniles, right? If it was obviously if it was white men, it would be white supremacy or something. I, I was, you know, I've done videos on the January 6th thing and I was there and uh, I just was amazed at how diverse the crowd was. Uh, and of course, yeah, there were a lot of quote unquote white people, people of European descent, but there was there was a whole lot of Asian people. There were there were black people. There were people from the Middle East. There, there were all kinds of people who were concerned about election integrity. And of course, what did the media do with that? Right. So we obviously know there's a double standard and it doesn't I probably don't even need to repeat that. But uh, but anyway, that's the frame that the left has their framing for this. They 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 there's a certain acceptability to when we saw in 2020 when um, racial minorities are uh, a complicit in some kind of a crime. There's a there's a certain pass that that's given an acceptability, whereas if it's someone who is not a racial minority, they are not given that same pass. And we can see that fairly clearly. Now, if you're an evangelical leader, I think the instinct is to immediately try to, before any commentary has been given, give a reason for why this isn't, there's no racial component here, right? It's like no, no one said there was necessarily yet, but you're already, you're, you're afraid that someone's going to bring that up. And so you're going to instead focus on um, this is sin. This is, you know, and sin doesn't know a color. And, and and all of those things are very true, but it is a peculiar reaction, in my opinion. It is a peculiar set of behavior. If you had, um, I don't know, let's say people that all wore, you know, striped shirt and a baseball cap. And that's, they all wore that. They all look like referees and they were complicit in some kind of a crime, right? And then if you were quick to say, well, referees aren't the problem. It's not referees, okay? Because not all referees were were in this. Not a, there's the referees who were who were not, you know, participating in these bad calls or I don't know. I don't, I don't know why I picked referee, but just you know, a particular class of people that have a certain you can identify them. And if your first instinct is to say it's the darkness of their heart, you are technically correct, but you're not very helpful. <laughs> you're not you're not very helpful in examining what are what what are the conditions here? What what has allowed this to take place? Is it, uh, is it because there's less policing in those areas where those kinds of people live? Is it be right? What I'm, what I'm saying is that there's nothing really like public policy wise you can do about it. Um, or, or very little, uh, there's, you can't really examine it. You can't get under the hood. You can't ask questions because if you do, you're going to be anti-referee, right? In that case, I don't know why I picked them. I'm, you know, God bless referees. In fact, um, a friend of mine texted me yesterday and said they were at a, a little league game and the referee apparently, I guess, made a call that a, a parent didn't agree with. And the parent went ballistic and, and I guess punched someone. And it's like, you know, referees have a hard job sometimes. So nothing against referees. See here, here I'm qualifying it. That's, that's, that, that's the kind of thing I'm talking about. I'm, I'm doing this on purpose, by the way, that's the kind of thing I'm talking about. Um, obviously I'm not anti-referee. Right. So, so anyway, that, that is super, super mild and not something I would ever really highlight or care about, but, th but that reaction is odd. And that's what I want you to just see is that it's kind of weird. Why is that there? Why is that instinct built into, I would say, even generally speaking us, why do we immediately uh, want to jump to like, maybe there's literally a problem with that area. Maybe the black community in that area is there's a breakdown of some kind. And it's whether that's parents or, you know, preachers, they're, they're not doing their job or 
it's lack of policing or like why we, we we can't really get into that though that that's that's kind of my point and um and so anyway there oh tim bushong's on tim tim and i recorded an episode earlier today i'm gonna probably release tomorrow that y'all need to listen to um so anyway a lot of people uh weighing in i'll just get to one more question hey john wondering if you're going to address the buswell library situation at wheaton college the name is being changed on anti-racist grounds you know brian this is probably uh, a situation where i should be looking into that let me let me see if it's easily available here um library i'm just going to see if there's like a, a a news story out there right now on the topic because i think that fits in you're right i i actually someone yesterday i think it was messaged me about the situation and um I had a few situations queued up, but this is definitely one of them. Let me see if I it, it'll come up. Yeah. Okay. So the Chicago Tribune has a story on this. So we'll we'll include that. Thank you for uh, letting me know. If it'll let me pull it up, let's see. I hope it will. Some of these uh, news organizations they they don't allow you to um, to read them if you are a uh not a subscriber which you know makes sense all right it let me in good so we'll we'll cue that up all right well um let, let, let's uh let's talk about a few situations and we're going to get into some of the owen strawn stuff i know that's what some of you are waiting for because i i have an overlapping audience i guess with g3 but but we'll we'll start with some examples from i guess more you know big eva or, or what what we were critiquing in 2018 2019 2020 2021 more so, which was these organizations and institutions that kind of went woke, right? So we'll talk about them. Um, we will start with, well, let's start with the situation before we get to that. Let's start with the situation we're in. Because I think, here, here's just a few news stories that I think set the tone for this whole thing. Um, it, just, just a reminder of the world you're living in. Uh, this is from Bloomberg. Here's the, uh, the title of the piece. says this, corporate America promised to hire a lot more people of color. It actually did. The year after Black Lives Matter protests, the S&P 100 added more than 300,000 jobs. 94% went to people of color. 94. That's insane. That's insane. And here's, uh, well, Here's the next paragraph. For a brief moment in 2020, much of corporate America united around a common goal to address the stark racial imbalances in the workplace. Mass protests sparked by the murder of George Floyd led to a flurry of company promises, both specific and vague, to hire and promote more black people and others from underrepresented groups. Exclusive analysis by Bloomberg News shows how many of the biggest public companies did. And so it gets into the actual numbers here. Um, and the, the job growth, the new jobs, uh, the overall job growth included 20,524 white workers. And here you can see it graphically represented. That's 6%. The other three, 302,000, uh, 300, yeah, two, it's a big number. 302,570 jobs or 94% of the headcount increase went to people of color. People of color, and, and so it, it breaks it down, made up a minority of the U.S. population and in most cases are underrepresented at big U.S. company. In 2021, Hispanic, Asian and black people made up a vast majority of the added workers. And it shows the, the actual percentages here. Forty percent Hispanic, 
Um, I thought you're supposed to say Latino. So I guess Bloomberg is still in the dark ages here. 23% black, Asian, 22%, other races, 8%. Even, even the other races were 2% more than white people. The biggest shifts happened in less senior job categories. White people held fewer of those roles in 2021 than they did in 2020, whereas thousands of people of cover, color were added to the ranks. So, so I don't know if I need to keep reading this. It just breaks it down more and more and more and shows you basically what these big, and these are big companies, right? What they're doing, how they're diversifying their corporate boards and their, uh, their actual jobs that they offer to people. And, and so, um, so this is the world we're living in where that pressure exists. And, and, and here's the thing that you need to realize about this. This isn't some government affirmative action thing, right? This isn't like the government is necessary. Now, I'm not saying the government doesn't have a say in this to some extent and exert their pressure, but that's not that they're, they're doing this themselves for moral credibility more than anything else. They're doing this because a particular uh, class of people in the upper levels of our institutions have a certain view on diversity that they they think that diversity is first of all, it's not real diversity in the sense of like, you know, they're not necessarily um, uh, adopting aspects of other cultures for their own and becoming friends with people of different ethnicities and that kind of thing necessarily. It's more of a formula for what true equality and freedom and success looks like prosperity in the modern West, in the United States and other Western European nations. And and so their idea is that we can dilute the influence of white people who bring oppression to the table, and therefore there will be more equality. There will be a good outcome from this. That's what's going on. It's not like there's uh, the Supreme, they don't want to do it, right? And the Supreme Court is forcing them to, or some laws forcing them to, or the executive administration, you know, it, it's because they have a certain view of things. We don't even, you, you can change the laws and this would still uh, be taking place to an extent. And, and that should kind of concern you a little bit, at least. I mean, I, I, I think, I think in this, if you're someone at least who's, uh, you know, let's say you're of European descent and your kids are that way and you're wondering, are they going to have the opportunities that you did? Um, is this going to be a, a situation like the one you grew up with where it was based on merit more, whether you got the job and competence or is it based on other factors? And, and I'll tell you where this gets really dangerous is the military. And that's where we all have to be concerned when the military and they're already doing this, start giving handing out jobs to incompetent people simply because they have a certain ethnic makeup, then we it hampers our fighting force. That means the standards all go down, just like when women were admitted into combat roles, the standards had to go down for them. They couldn't be held to the uh, the men's standard. So in this case, when you had uh, people competing for jobs and whether they were racial minorities or not, they had to meet a certain qualification to get the job. Now, those those uh, uh, there's really it's inevitable. Those standards have to be dumbed down in order to get an increased uh, presence of minority people. Now, some people immediately the knee jerk reaction goes off right now. Uh, I, I can already I can already feel it that you're saying that racial minorities aren't as smart as white people or something like that. It's like, no, I'm just saying statistically that certain demographic groups have a higher percentage of people in them who achieve 
success in certain areas. So it's it's not like it's a superior order in inferior order thing as far as human worth, of course, or even um, like it's not even saying that in all cases uh, there's a general trend in this particular ethnic group or racial group to be better at something than other people. It's just the truth, the real world that we live in, where guess what? Jewish people tend to be better at banking, or at least they get positions. <laughs> in those, those roles more likely. They're very disproportionate. Same in Hollywood, same, same in, um, in, in law, right? Um, not a lot of white people in the MBA, right? So, so there's, you can look at different industries and see different people are attracted to them. When you go to a hotel or a gas station, you're going to see um, possibly, and it, it very, there's a higher percentage, I'll put it that way, of people from the Middle East or India you know, why is that? Why are the hospitality services more like that? Now, there's reasons for all this, and they're complicated, some of them. It's not racist in the, and I'm using the traditional sense of the word racism. It doesn't, you're not hating someone by pointing something like that out. It's just, it's like, it's like pointing out the weather. That's just what's happening. That's just what's out there. So I think most of the audience here is on the same page, but, um, but that's the world we're living in where there's, uh, things are exceptionally weighted against people of European descent in corporate America, in the advertisements we see. Here's another article. This is, um, the headline is, ADL defends Ukraine's neo-Nazis. They don't attack Jews or Jewish institutions. Now, of course, the Anti-Defamation League. You got to understand this about them. An Orthodox Christian is an anti-Semite to them. If you believe Jesus is exclusively the only way to heaven, if you think that Jewish people are any, in any way complicit in the death of Christ, you are the worst kind of anti-Semite. You're, you're in the same category as Hitler, basically. I mean, you, you are uh, repeating centuries of European hate against Jewish people in their minds. And, and they say things like this. I could have pulled it up. I didn't need to, though, because it's easy to find it. Now, here's the thing about the ADL, though, right? And, and they're the premier, I would say, you know, they're the ones that define and enforce anti-anti-Semitism stuff, right? It, it, the word really kind of belongs to them at this point and groups like them. And here they are. This is, a, this is it's, it's so funny to me. It's just, I, you, you can't hardly do this without laughing. There are neo-Nazis in Ukraine. This is an article in, on the ADL website. Uh, just as there are in the US and in Russia for that matter, but they are a very marginal group with no political influence and they don't attack Jews or Jewish institutions in Ukraine. Now, of course, you know, we, we saw what just happened with the Canadian parliament and, um, and boy, that's a mess. And, uh, and so if you scroll down on this article, it shows that the ADL used to actually critique the Azov battalion in Ukraine, which has ties to neo-Nazis and white supremacists. I mean, there's literally pictures of them with swastikas and all that kind of thing. I mean, it's, it's what you'd expect. It's the image you're drawing in your mind. That's the image. Our latest report on international white supremacy details how they try to connect with like-minded extremists from the U.S. So, so this was, when was this? 2019, the Azov Battalion was dangerous, anti-Semitic, watch out for them. We don't want them influencing us. And now, well, I mean, they're not really, they're not against Jews. They're, it's crazy. And, and the reason is, is because why? Why is, is there a reason for this? It serves a narrative. It serves a narrative. What's the narrative it serves? We need to be giving our treasure and our, re our resources to Ukraine. That's the purpose it serves. And so when Ukraine is actively 
partnering with what are described as neo-Nazi groups who want to fight Russia, especially in the uh, eastern regions of the country, then you have to go along with it. In fact, it is it, there is no question that you the money that you, the United States is spending in other Western European countries going to Ukraine, some of that is winding up and, and, and the, the military, um, the guns and, and the bullets and all of that, it's winding up in the hands of the Azov Battalion. And it's, but that's okay. That's okay. That's permissible. It's okay to partner with Nazis if they're fighting Russia, apparently. That's the message, right? And, and they're less scary because they're fighting the real Nazi, which is Putin, right? It's comical. It's absolutely comical. The people that actually are closer to the ideology of Nazi Germany, I mean, and they use the symbols and everything, they are not as much Nazis as Adolf Hitler. Is. So, 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 so what is, what is a Nazi? What is, it, it's just, at this point, it's a word in the modern context that's just wielded around uh, to smear anyone that the left disagrees with and to try to compare them to the worst uh, you know, crime in all of human history. In their minds, and 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 this, of course, you know, th this is the same thing that they do with anti-Semitic. It's the same thing they do with racist. They have there are so many words, and and they own those words. That's what you have to understand. They own them. The ADL is saying right there, they own it. If they're able to take a neo-Nazi group and say they're not anti-Semitic, essentially, they own that term. They own that concept, and to use that framing to try to um, still maintain some kind of a static definition for that term and insert it into a Christian context when it's such a new term anyways. It, it didn't even exist until like 130 years ago. It's, it is a, uh, it's a hard thing to do. I, and I don't even know how you do it. And I think it's a very unwise thing to do when um, there's a certain universal understanding that now exists in the world about what that means. And it's not what Christians who are well-meaning think it means. And this is getting to something where we're going to get talked about these memorials in the CREC soon, but I, I figured I'd plow, I'd till the field first. Um, <laughs> wow. A lot, a lot of people weighing in. Uh, <laughs> let's see. We got someone here. John Carter asks, are Indian people particularly good at running convenience stores or hotels? Is there overrepresentation due to competence or nepotism and in-group preference? I don't know. I've never researched it. It may be in group preference. It may be that, uh, you know, they, they tend to give jobs to each other and that they employ each other. That that's, that's very common. It's a natural human tendency to be quite honest with you. Um, the, it's, it's white people who, as you just saw uh, in the, in the Bloomberg story that seem to be the anomalies in all of human history in that they think it is morally much superior to um, not favor people that are like you. Now, of course, th there, there's, there, there is a twist to this, I think, because the higher positions, they're given to the people who will benefit them. I mean, they're, it, it's, it's going to be your nephew and your, or you know, if it's not your nephew or your uncle, it's a friend who will allow you to get away with your corruption and that kind of thing. So, of course, there is a self-benefit thing. But, but people, cultures that look at each other, look at themselves as corporate entities that we're, we're one, we're one family, essentially a big family. Yeah, of course, if, if they look at themselves that way, they're going to um, favor each other, all other things being equal. And that's just the way human history has been written. Um, 
Okay. Uh, <laughs> man, I want to comment on some of these, but I, I can't. We, we, I'm way behind where I thought I was going to be. I'm already over half an hour in. I haven't even like scratched the surface. So um, might be a mega edition today. We'll see. Um, all right. So here's the, the next story. Uh, well, let, let's do this one first. Morristown family from Germany fears deportation after more than 15 years in the U.S., to try to save some time, I'm just going to summarize here. There's a family from Germany, been here 15 years, and they they left Germany because uh, seeking asylum, basically, because they wanted to um, homeschool their children and the German government wouldn't allow them to do that. So they've been here and now they're going to be deported. And and here's here's the thing. Um, this is this is so rich that it's coming at a time. Here's a story for those who can't see it. It's coming at a time when you have the border essentially wide open. More than it's ever been in human history in, in the well in the United States history, and you have people pouring in here from all over the world, all over Asia, all over South America. But this German family, they need to be deported, and, and it's just the irony of the situation. Why? 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 Why do they? Why are they a threat? Or why do they? Not not a threat, but you know why? Why? Why do we apply the rules to them, but we don't apply any rules to our southern border? I mean, this is. And we know the reason, I think. I mean, and it's not like anyone has to come out and say it because we've lived in this scenario for so long. What, what do they have that's different than the people pouring across the southern border right now? Well, they come from a Western European country, you know, i.e. they're white. They're, they're white and they're Christian and they're homeschoolers. And that means they're dangerous. They're a threat to the regime more than all the people who are coming across the Southern border who will likely be voting Democrat when they do get an opportunity to vote and all of that. And so, yeah, we, we know why this is happening. Now, this is the situation that we live in. Here's one more thing. And I, I, I figured I should at least mention it since someone brought it up. Wheaton college examines it's racial history, but absence of hijab wearing professor, uh, LGBT rights question. So this is a, a I guess I don't want to read all of this. This is kind of a, a longer, story and maybe later in the week or next week we can talk about this more um but essentially they're re they're, they're doing what has been going on now for a few years they're renaming it looks like their library because i guess a guy who had some insensitive views on race or something the legacy of slavery or yeah <laughs> something like that um oh it talks about the southern baptist theological seminary and brown University. yeah so so this is happening all over the place uh, these debates but um, they're actually doing something about it. They they got rid of a marker. Was it two years ago that because it used the word savage in it to talk about a pagan population that Jim Elliott was trying to reach? Um, but anyway, there, there's a there's a couple things um, going on there. And and this is, of course, Wheaton. This is a Christian college, Christian institution historically. And they're just caving like everywhere else uh, to this stuff. So so I think we have to start here. We have to start with where we're at. And this is just within the last week, right? We're I'm not going deep into uh, into anything. This is just stuff that I couldn't avoid. It just fell in my lap. And all all this kind of, to summarize, all this shows us is that there's definitely a bias out there. There's a bias against our own history. There's a bias against um, uh, white people as there's a suspicion about them, about the descendants of Europeans. And, and it's your, sure enough, it's Europeans in authoritative positions who are fomenting this. There's no doubt. Um, I don't know if they think that they're going to get some kind of a credit for it or they're, they can separate themselves from those other deplorable descendants of Europeans because because they're more enlightened. You know, whatever it is, um, there is this bias and it's being reinforced 
by the people, the very people we trust in our own institutions or we trusted till very recently. So I thought it was important to lay that groundwork. Now, um, let's talk about a few of the things going on. I guess that's a good transition um, in Christianity. Southern Baptist Convention, let's start with them. Uh, William Melhado, who, if you click on his profile, is a reporter for the Texas Tribune, and he's, his pronouns are he, him, with an LGBT flag. So uh, he says, packed house here. Uh, there's a panel. It's a Robert Downen panel on the rise of Christian nationalism at TribFest 23. So this is not, I don't think this is a Christian conference. Trib, I don't think it's like tribulation, like eschatology tribulation. Um, trib, trib, I don't even know what TribFest stands for. Well, Ted Cruz is there. So maybe it is a conservative. I don't know what it is. I haven't looked into it, but anyway, it's, it's, it's not like a, an evangelical thing as far as I know. And he says, um, let, so, so he's quoting, I guess, Anthea Butler and, uh, says, let's talk about Christians who want to persecute people who just want a better life. <laughs> right. That's persecution. Wanting to close that border efforts to bring chapels. Uh, chaplains into Texas public schools is a direct effort to challenge longstanding church state separation, says Amanda Tyler. A tex, uh, let's see, a bill in Texas passed earlier this year that Texas schools can replace counselors with chaplains. Okay, and then here, here's the key part. Bart Barber, president of the Southern Baptist Convention, said most of the evangelicals who are contributing to Christian nationalism's rise don't actually go to church. What's the use in calling it a culture war when it's a war for power, Dr. Butler asks. The use of Christian morals to oppose abortion, LGBTQ rights, and more. So, so Bart Barber got on this this lefty panel, and essentially, I mean, I guess he's sitting there, and and I don't think we have recordings of it. We just have pictures in this report. Um, he is uh, he's reinforcing the framing. We'll put it that way. Now, I don't know if I have it queued up. Let me see, Joshua Abatoy, Joshua Abatoy, um said, wonder how Bart Barber formed his opinion. Everything I've seen runs contrary to this. And, and it is true. I think Jeff Wright had posted some actual stats that people who identified as Christian nationalists were much more likely to attend services. Uh, Bart Barber responded, though, and he says, in response to a number of statements linking Christian nationalism with kinism and white supremacy, I cited research I had read suggesting that that particular strain of Christian nationalism that is kinist or white supremacist is often less church going and involvement in missions, trips, and evangelism works against that. Now, I don't I have no clue what he's talking about. He doesn't provide a link. It's just there, there, I don't know who, how, who tested for this. I mean, is there a literal I mean, all five kinists out there, right, were pulled and they didn't go to church or mission. Like, what is he talking about? How do you test? I'd love to see the uh how how that poll uh works. But that, that was the Southern Baptist Convention. Well, well, then you have this. This is, oh, man, and I'm sorry if, no, people, okay, everyone is seeing it. Good. I thought for a minute no one was seeing what I was showing. Then you have this, um, this, this from Owen Strawn at the G3 conference. So I'm just going to play it, this clip. This is the clip. They, I haven't clipped this. This is G3 putting it out there. Does not love a merely white church in America. God loves a global people of all backgrounds and tribes. This is under fire today from different corners, but we confess it and will stand here come what may. God loves the global body of Christ. God. Okay. All right. Well, th you know, thank you, Captain Obvious here. Um, 
I don't know of one person, even people now. And I have, I never knew kinists. I, I still don't really actually know any kinists that I'm aware of personally. Um, but I have seen what in the last year or two, um, people, I think I know two people. I, I can, I can think of two people on Facebook who are say that they're kinists and, um, I don't even think they, and I don't know them well, but I'm really pretty certain I've never seen anything from them that would suggest that they believe anything close to what Owen Strand is saying here. And, and that's kind of like, if, if you're trying to even like, forget about Christian nationalism for a minute. If you're trying to critique self, the kinist, people who take the label for themselves, if they don't even agree with that, then what are you actually critiquing? And I'm not an expert on kinism, but as I understand it, the kinist kinist perspective, and I think it's a broad range. I, and it's it's a definite. I don't even know what the definition quite is because it's so now it seems so malleable the way people use it. But as I understand it, uh, historically, this came out of a certain vein of theonomy, and the idea was that some of the laws in the Old Testament that apply to pagan nations are still in application. Okay, that's all I understand it to be. And so they, they try to find a modern application for those laws. And so that gets them into the positions where they try to say things like um, you shouldn't marry outside of your race because that would be a violation. And um, I don't know, maybe more extreme forms. I've never seen this, but but I guess it's possible there are more extreme forms that would say that's not even a valid marriage. I, I don't quote me on that. And I'm not certainly not trying to slander them, but I, I, I could see how you could come up with extreme forms of that. My point is, in the most extreme form of that thinking, which I don't agree with, but but I, I understand the logic of how they're getting there. In the most extreme form of that, that's not saying that God doesn't love non-white people at all. It, it's saying, it, it, in fact, the rules would be the same for every group, right? So it, they're not saying that white people have a special status that a certain rule only applies to them or certain benefits only apply to them. It's saying across the board, they just think that's part of God's order. Now I disagree uh, with, with taking, I think that's a reductionistic approach to it, um, to, to uh, people, groups, ethnicity, race, all of that. But, but that's, I think the, that's the perspective. And hopefully if anyone is a kinist, if anyone's watching, I don't think there are any kinists watching right now, but if anyone later on who is, takes the label for themselves. Hopefully they can let me know whether they think I'm fairly representing them or not. One thing I know for sure though, is Owen is not fairly representing them, nor is he definitely, he's definitely not representing Christian nationalists. There's no question people who take that label on themselves. I've, I've never once seen anyone say anything close to that. So what do you do with this? Now, context is important here. This has been a debate online for years, not years, sorry. <laughs> I guess it has been years, but when it comes to Christian nationalism, not years, sorry, weeks, uh, months, but definitely weeks. Um, in fact, uh, Stephen Wolf has already been basically predicting this, saying, Owen's going to come and call me a kinist, and that's a lie. I'm not. Um, in fact, uh, as I understand it, Stephen has reached out to Owen before he did this, already correcting him for what he was about to do, and Owen did it anyway. And Stephen has tweets going back years saying that he's critiquing kinism, saying he's not a kinist, saying even holding up certain interracial marriages as good and fitting, that kind of thing. Uh, and, and yet there, there's no ability to interact with that. There, there, there's one particular tweet from, I think, about a year ago 
that Stephen made where he was uh, pontificating on inter-ethnic marriage and whether it could be a relative sin, meaning um, even if it's not a sin in and of itself, uh, is it possible that marrying outside of your group and in Stephen's mind, and this is what you have to understand about that is in Stephen's mind, when he talks about ethnicity, he has a particular definition and he talks about in his book, the case for Christian nationalism, that's more holistic, that includes things like religion. Um, so marriage, so, so you have to look at it as, is it a sin to marry outside of your, of your faith group of your, um, and, and you could expand that perhaps to culture but faith is, is, is a part of this. And so he was asking something very different than how it's being framed. And people want to latch onto that. They want to insert their own definition of ethnicity, which is reduced to genetics. They want to then, um, even though Stephen went and, and basically retracted it and said, yeah, you know, I don't even, I don't, I think it was silly. I don't, I don't even agree with that. They, they want to say, wow, haha, that was the moment where Stephen revealed his true colors. The racism is right under the surface. Stephen Wolf has it, and we can ignore everything else he said. In fact, multiple times, even on this podcast, which is why it's pointless for me to bring Stephen on again to have him explain for the fifteenth time why he doesn't agree with kinism and he does and he doesn't disagree with interracial marriage and that kind of thing. It's pointless because it's been said so many times. Stephen's clarified it so many times, and disagree with him all you want. Great, have a robust conversation. Uh, an actual conversation would be nice. But instead, what we get is mudslinging, is slander. And it is slander. Biblically speaking, this is slander. And not only is Owen saying it, but G3 is promoting it. And you have the organizers of G3 uh, circling the wagons around it. And that's the thing that I find so disheartening. And it, it probably doesn't do me much good to say this as far as like, do I want to make enemies of G3? No, not at all. In fact, I, I still would say to everyone listening, like, look, if you're in the area and it comes to town and you're thinking of going to a good conference, you're going to find some good preaching there. But some of the people running this conference, they are fine with slander. They're fine with destroying um, a brother in Christ who, who doesn't even hold these positions. And I don't even know what, what to say beyond that, except this is very reminiscent of the way Russell Moore treated Christians. He, he would make the exact same kind of statements that uh, MLK 50. I, I remember he did something very similar to this. Um, he did, he does it on immigration. He, he says things like he, he gives the impression that there's this group of Christians out there who somehow don't care about immigrants. Right. Uh, and, and it's like, what are, you, what are you talking about? You know, there's some group of Christians that just care about white people. There's some group of Christians that think, that uh, Jesus only belongs to them and he's Republican and this. And, and, and every time he would say things like that, I would say, what, you, what, what are you? You know, come on, man. You know, to quote Joe Biden, come on, man. And he would do it anyways. It doesn't matter how many times. And, and of course, it's always kind of vague and couched. There's this big group. You know, maybe there's uh, one figure we can pull out and say it's him, but then we'll smear a whole group. And it, it, this is the same thing. Owen's taking one person, Stephen, and then he's he's going to use that to smear a whole group. Now, maybe maybe he mentioned a few other people in his particular uh, talk. I don't know. But 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 it's the same kind of tactic to say there's this large group of people that have this impression that Jesus uh, doesn't care about people who aren't white. Um, yeah, it's, it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. And, and it shouldn't I shouldn't really have to need to say anything beyond that, to be uh, quite honest with you. But surprisingly, instead of being laughed out of the room for saying something like that, 
you have stuff like this um, getting, and it's got a lot of traction, this tweet. Um, nothing is shocking about Owen's statement. What's shocking is that this statement needed to be made currently in the church in America. Sad. That's the exact same play the woke people made in 2020. Not saying Ken's woke, and I'm not saying Owen Strawn's woke to the point that people in, uh, who went woke in 2020 are woke. But there, there's a little bit of wokeness there with Owen. And he, and he had it before 2018. So it's not a surprise. The way he treated like police shootings and that kind of thing. But, you know, this tactic, though, is definitely what I saw the woke people doing. It's confirmation bias. So so you say something that's crazy, right? You say something that's slanderous. And then someone comes out and says, objects to it. It's like, this is slander. And then you double down by saying, the fact that people object to this must mean that they agree with this, the sentiment that Owen's critiquing. It's sad that it even needed to be said. And you, you grab your pearls and you you have your, your virtue signal time. And... Um, I think is this man, uh, you, you have people tweets like this, um, from Scott O'Neill, throw a rock into a pack of dogs. The one that yelps the loudest is the, the, usually the one that got hit. It's just not helpful. <laughs> you know, if, if you're complaining about this, I mean, it's in a context. So he's, he's putting this in a context where if you're complaining about this, then, Hey, if you're yelping the loudest, maybe it applies to you. Maybe we should be suspicious that you're a racist. And, and by the way, if anyone, and I'm sure there will be people who try to take even what I'm saying here in this podcast and try to start smearing me, right? I'm racist for critiquing it. I must agree with it or something. Uh, then it's the same tactic. And it's, it's, it's a lying slanderous tactic, which uh, is manipulative. It's just, it's what the world does. Now, Owen doubled down on it. He was corrected multiple times, but he decided to double down and he uh, decided to post this thread from uh, Jared, uh, Justin Taylor, who has been with, I think, I don't even know if he directly works for the Gospel Coalition. I think he does, actually. I think he draws a paycheck from them, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but he's very associated with the Gospel Coalition. And so now you have Owen Strand retweeting someone from the Gospel Coalition who makes the same critique, essentially. Or a similar, actually, his critique's not even as harsh as Owen's. And he says, this is what Owen says. Do not miss this very revealing thread on kinism in our circles from Justin Taylor. It is no imaginary foe. It is alive and well. So you click on it. Here's Justin Taylor from the Gospel Coalition, which, uh, you know, frankly, you know, as soon as it, uh, it's Gospel Coalition, I'm, I'm kind of I'm out already. You know, I'm I'm already kind of like, yeah, eh, it's probably not true. Um, but just because of years of reading their stuff on politics and, and realizing how terrible it is. But here, here, here we go. Here's Justin Taylor. Kevin DeYoung on Stephen Wolf's book. So, so first, he's going to quote Kevin DeYoung talking about Stephen Wolf to prove Stephen Wolf is a chemist. And Kevin DeYoung, of course, um, you know, says that there's uh, that that this could be used that Stephen Wolf's stuff could be used to uh, try to, I guess, stand against interracial marriage or something. So, so anyway, we got Kevin DeYoung's opinion here, and then we got Alistair Roberts on Stephen Wolf. That's great. Um, we we have Alistair Roberts, and Alistair Roberts is. Um, <laughs> saying his opinion about Stephen Wolf. So, so we're still not going to Stephen Wolf. We just have opinions about Stephen Wolf from respected authorities. And then we have, and this was, by the way, at the time Owen retweeted it, this was the last tweet in the sequence. And it, it, it's from a guy named Blake Callens. I think that's his name, um, who posted this video. Now I'm going to show you this video. For those who are, uh, who listen to this podcast regularly, you, you know, because you watched it, 
what happened in the discussion that I had the other day with Stephen Wolf and Josh Abatoy and um, uh, Nate Fisher and William Wolf. You'll know that there was a hesitation that some of them had to answer questions throughout the entire interview for a few reasons. I think the first was they didn't want to interrupt each other, right? So if I didn't call on someone, it, there was just that awkward pause. The other reason I think was some of the questions seemed directed at certain people. And if that person didn't answer, like if, if it seemed like it was a question for Stephen, but if Stephen didn't answer, then others were just reluctant to do that. This happened throughout the entire podcast. It also happened, though, during one specific question. I'm going to show you that video and then I'm going to tell you what the context is. I'm going to show you another video. So here's the video that Owen Strawn's retweeting uh, in a thread that Owen Strawn's retweeting that Justin Taylor uh, put out there as evidence that Christian nationalism has a problem with kinism. Here we go. Audience. So uh, here's one for 1999. Um, is it inherently better to marry your own race? So the word race is used, not ethnicity, not culture, but. Um, so I'm assuming that there's a genetic component that Ian Franklin is bringing into this. Um, I mean, I think Stephen already kind of talked about this, but uh, I don't know if any of you you guys want to answer that question. Is it is it better or worse? Does it matter? I'm I'll pick on someone if we have to. <laughs> All right, so it's it's trying to to show like this is a comedy show, and that uh, it, it takes that one clip and shows, and, and that hesitation alone was enough to prove that kinism is a problem in Christian nationalist circles. In fact, Owen even um, I didn't pull it up, but he had a subtweet against this. Um, it, it was something like, I'm pretty sure it was this. My my face when Christian brothers can't answer if interracial marriage is wrong or or something like that if it should be permitted, and. Someone else, though, made a response pretty soon after it. Someone who had actually watched the podcast, I, I assume. And this is what they put. And I, I want you to, to I wonder if this changes anything. Um, now, of course, these are, this is meme world we're talking about. This is, this is a world where people are mocking each other. But here is, uh, here is a, a second rendition of this from the audience. So uh, here's one for 1999. Um, is it inherently better to marry your own race? Flashback. In one of my chapters, I say that intermarriage connect is good in creating a um, a, a more like solid, uh, uh, more solidarity amongst a, a culture. It doesn't matter that that's in there. It doesn't matter that my book says nothing about interracial marriage or inter interethnic marriage. End of flashback. Okay, so <laughs> that was the flashback. Stephen had already answered the question. And then if you actually watch and, and Josh Abatoy chimes in uh, to answer the question again, Josh Abatoy says, yeah, it's, it's fine. There's, there's nothing wrong with that at all. So it's, you have to selectively edit and like, like CNN and MSNBC would do. And then you have to bring a lot of assumptions to the table in order to slander. That's what's happening there. Now, uh, Justin Taylor, let's see if I can pull it up again. Justin Taylor added to this. Um, so the next day he added to this, the 26th, that was yesterday. And he says, I'll whack back my previous tweet and publicly apologize. So to his credit, this is something Owen isn't doing, but Justin Taylor from the Gospel Coalition is willing to do. You can watch the full context here. And then, and then he, <laughs> he's got to leave the parting shot here. The host, 
who once wrote a seminary paper defending the Confederacy, but then tried to pretend that he didn't, asks a listener question about whether it's inherently better to marry your own race. So, so here, this is such a leftist like tactic. Bring in something that's unrelated, okay, but is equally egregious to the left, defending the Confederacy, right? And then try to attach that. Now, he got his facts wrong here <laughs> anyway. I mean, um, it wasn't, yeah, he's talking about me. And it wasn't a paper defending the Confederacy. It was, I, I, I'll, I'm comfortable saying that it was defending Southern denominations before uh, the, the start of the war, at least. But defending is not even the best word. It's more like trying to just rep represent them accurately because they've been so um, misunderstood. And and yes, there was a there when the Fuller, the Russell Fuller interviews came out. Um, I still remember this and I still have all the tweets. And I, I there's no reason for me to bring it up now. I dealt with it at the time and did a couple episodes and just dealt with all of this. But um, long story short, there was a professor from Southern Seminary. And Southern Seminary was bleeding at the time. I mean, Russell Fuller was just taking them to the woodshed, exposing the liberalism there. And um and so there was a professor there. I don't even remember his name now. Um, eschatology guy, I think. But anyway, uh, he came out and in, he started trying to publicly like get me into like a struggle session <laughs> online. That's what it felt like. And um, he was at first, actually, I didn't know what he was talking about. He wanted to know if I wrote this dissertation on uh, defending the Confederacy or defending slavery, I think it was. And and I was like, I, it, first of all, it wasn't a dissertation. My paper wasn't a dissertation. But I did not want to, like, I was in a position of, at the time, we need to focus on what Fuller's saying here at Southern Seminary. And they're trying to distract from it to impugn the motives of the interviewer. And as if Fuller, I guess, was listening to my questions and getting, you know, I don't know, dog whistles from the racist. And they're trying to totally distract from it to, find something they can use to malign. And, and I thought this was telling. I thought this was a slam dunk because it's like, well, if they're that desperate, then they have no answer to this. Fuller must be telling the truth. That That's basically the, the, the takeaway. But I wasn't going to make it easy for them. I wasn't going to come out immediately and just take credit for, yes, this is my paper. And, you, I, uh, and I've learned more since then. At the time, I was hoping, can we get back to the topic at hand? Um, but I never denied it. I never denied it. Um, I didn't remember what my title was for the paper. This was years ago. This is 2011. Um, I, you know, I, I've written since then. I've taken some of that research and I put it in um, book form. And uh, you can find it uh, on Amazon. Sacred Conviction: The South's Fight for Biblical Authority. Joseph J. It was a pseudonym. I used it at the time because wiser men than me said you need to. And I, I debated it and I thought, well, you know, the Federalist Papers were pseudonyms and they said, you'll never get a job in academia, even though we agree with you, you're right, but you'll never get a job if you write something like this. And I was like, okay. So, so that's what I did. But, but I, I think the, the other side, the Cosmo Coalition side, what they've tried to do in their ignorance is they've latched onto this to try to discredit anything that I do. They said, John tried to hide this. John is trying to, and you know, of, of course, you're going to use, if you have unpopular views, Using a pseudonym, I think makes I like that's part of the reason these anon accounts. I'm not against having an anon account. I don't have one, but um, and I've changed my view on this because I realize it's so easy to get doxxed. So why even you know? But if you're going to get unpopular information out there, right? Um, using a, a symbolic name of some kind, I don't think that's a wrong thing uh, to do. That I don't think it's I don't I don't think it's engaging in lying in the sense of like 
your it, it's it's like nicknames or um you know it, it's it's what you're known as in a particular environment and it is for the purpose of protection and frankly we wouldn't have the concept the bill of rights if we didn't have people doing that uh back in the time of our founding so anyway we we, we can debate we can disagree on pseudonyms and whether or not they should be used or not I, i'm i'm less likely to use them myself but i understand people who have jobs and families to feed and yet they have you know a brilliant political mind and they want to be out there talking about these things i mean they, they really have no option um uh, if they don't want to get fired right so anyway i, I don't want to camp on this too long but justin taylor his facts are wrong i didn't i never tried to pretend that i didn't um i just wasn't making it easy for them i wasn't admitting to things that they were misread like <laughs> saying it's a dissertation or stuff like that i, I just wasn't admitting to it so, and I did right after that though. Um, and, and look, it, it was, a, I wrote it, you know, I don't know, I was 20, 21 or whatever when I wrote it, I might change some things if I had it to do over, but in the substance of it, I mean, I was right. I was right. I think time has even proved more that I'm right with the way the SBC convention has been going. So that that's Justin Taylor's way of trying to link me somehow. Like, like it's understandable that he would have thought that we would have been against interracial marriage because at one time I wrote a paper defending the Confederacy. Right. Okay, Justin. <laughs> After no one answers, he calls on a panelist who says it's not better or worse, but it's common and fine. Uh, and then he he tries. So so this is this is not an apology, guys. He starts with a public apology, and then tweet after tweet after tweet. Here's another one. Stephen Wolf uh, is a tweet I talked to you about earlier about Stephen Wolf. He he brings that into the the equation. Uh, he's trying to bring other things in. To, he, I mean, look how long this is. Shenvey, what what does Neil Shenvey think about Stephen Wolf's work? What does John Reasoner think of Stephen Woolsworth? So does you don't know who John Reasoner is. I, there's no reason you should, because I don't even, I, I barely know who he is, other than he just viciously will attack people out of nowhere um, for being kidnapped. It's actually quite comical, uh, to be honest with you. The way, and but he's, but it, it's just funny that he's using someone like that. He's, it goes, how many tweets is this? This goes on, this goes on 18, 19, 19, what, or no, 18, sorry, no, 17, 17 tweets. Okay. So 17 tweets, what was three tweets become 17 tweets because he's got to double down and walk back. And it's just, it's just a sad little case of someone who, um, man, and, and I'm sorry, none of you could see all, let me show you now. So here, here's the, uh, here, oh, that's not it, man. Let me pull it back up. I feel bad that I was, um, you saw me talking, but you didn't see what, what I was talking about. So here it is, Justin Taylor. So here, here's the, the whole tweet thread. So you can see it. Uh, there, there's the one where he talks about me. There's the one where he talks about Steven. So just keeps going. So anyway, um, so, so Justin Taylor, you know, doubles down, uses mostly people's opinions about Steven to try to prove that Steven's this terrible guy. And, and that's just, uh, you know, just not how it is. Um, let's see, what else did I want to show you? Um, okay. And then Owen Strong, this, he makes it worse. He makes it even worse yesterday. And this is where I was like, Owen, I mean, you got to stop. Uh, if, if you want any credibility left with, with the people who know what's actually going on here, th this is terrible. So Rhett Koppel um, says, and this is kind of, this is long. I don't want to read the whole thing, but he, he starts out. He says, the consistent problem I am seeing with denominations and conferences trying to police racism and kinism is that the biblical categories are almost always tossed aside in favor of modern sensibilities. Good point. The sin needs to be explicit and explicitly defined within a biblical category of sin before the church has any authority whatsoever to correct or address it. Instead, what we get are performative posturing and the condemnation of neoliberal buzzwords. Could not agree more. 
From what I can tell, sinful partiality and legalism are likely the best grounds for charging uh, sin in the case of what is commonly considered classic racism, kinism, anti-Semitism, or even then neoliberal fervor seems to exclude any sort of biblical category for wisdom, preference, conscience. For instance, saying interracial marriage is a sin is unwise. It isn't preferable and is contrary to one's own conscience are four different categories. But neoliberalism demands the same crudge will be used against them all. Despite the first being clear extra biblical legalism and the following, uh, the three fitting well within biblical permissible categories of wisdom, preference, conscience, yet all four of these categories would be rightly or wrongly labeled as kinist. So, so he go, anyway, he, he goes on and, and, and this is a great point that he's making. Great point. Because what he's saying is that kinism is, it means anything you want it to mean basically now um, within, like if you're even a little, like, like you'd rather, you'd prefer to marry within your own ethnic group. That's actually a, um, a quality that you're attracted to. And you, let's say you want to even, let, let's say you want to preserve um, your, your lineage. And, and, and you think that uh, marrying, if you're Ukrainian, you want to marry Ukrainian. Of course, it's not bad when you're talking about other countries, right? Uh, that, that would be considered kinism is what Rhett Koppel is trying to say. He's saying there's just, that's a legalism. You're binding people's conscience. The Bible doesn't say anything about this. Yes, of course, you're not supposed to be unequally yoked, which has a wide application. And I, I think it applies to marriage, but that the, it's not giving a, you know, it's not, doesn't forbid these preferences. And so great point. So what does Owen Strawn do with that? Wow. This is what he says. Very saddened to see that there are different forms of kinism, softer or harder, that have definitely entered the reform community. Such ideology is sinful. Like all sin, fleshly partiality calls us for repentance. Praise God. He loves to forgive straying people like us. Now, here, here's the thing. That's just legalism. That's just, that's it's literally what the woke do. It's what, you know, old time fundamentalists are kind of accused. They're, they're associated with doing just making up a rule and then just saying the Bible teaches this. Um, or, or there's a principle in the scripture and then you're trying to, to come up with a rule that maybe the principle could imply, but it's not actually explicit and you're making it, you're making it a hammer. Any, everyone has to, you, you cannot go to a movie theater and be a Christian or play cards or drink, or, um, you cannot say insensitive things. Uh, you cannot, you know, I'm trying to think of the woke have the, a longer list, but it's more vague because it's, it's, uh, if you don't meet some standard of egalitarianism, you are outside the tent and unclean and where there is much weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so Owen is, is characterizing what Rhett just said as kinism. All right, guys, that proves what I'm saying. I guess kinism is, it, it doesn't mean anything. It, it is meaningless at this point. Um, oh, I don't know why. Okay. So I brought, I guess I just had this on my tab because I thought it was, was weird. And it just, so someone sent me this. Owen Strand says such an honor to preach alongside my all caps blood brother in Christ, Vody Bakum. It's just cringy. Now, is there anything wrong with it? No, you can say that. But I'm, I'm just, you know, blood brother in Christ, because I guess it's a play on Christ's blood. You know, it's fine. There's nothing wrong with it. It's, it's just within the context of everything that's happening. It's like a it, it comes across as a chide. It's chiding people, you know, chiding all those kinists. He showed them. Right. Because uh, Vody Bacham's his blood. Yeah, Vody Bacham's my brother in Christ, too. And Vody Bacham and I are also friends. And but like, it's just like, I don't know. Is you know you're acting like there's this group of people who are against this. No one's against it. Not one person I know is against it. Um, so there you go. That's uh, that's the Owen Owen stuff. Now, um, I'm not sure why I'm 
I'm not sure why you can't see all this. I've been trying to show you stuff, and I guess, yeah, we can't see your screen. Everyone is is everyone and their mom is telling me they can't. Sorry, guys. John, I can't see. Um, I'm not sure what was going on there. I, I think I must have had a video pulled up, so you just got a little bitty screen of me. Sorry about that, guys. So now I have to go back and show you all of it real quick. So here's, uh, man, how, how far back do we go? <laughs> there's Josh's tweet. There's Ken. There's Scott. O'Neill, there's uh, Justin Taylor uh, and his his thread. And then, um, you know, there's Owen. I almost feel like I have to go back and edit this, but I don't really have time to. So hopefully people skip ahead so they can see all this. Um, and then here's Owen um, critiquing Rhett Koppel. So, and there you go. And there's uh, Owen, um, yeah, saying Bodie Bauckham's his blood brother, which I guess is supposed to be, uh, that's edgy or something. Okay, so we're we're back in business. Screens back up, uh, and I'll put my face uh, full screen for for this. So we have one last thing I want to talk about here, and that requires me to go to um, my Twitter. And by the way, I am back on Twitter. I, I've never actually said that on the podcast. So if you want to follow me, it's at John Harris eighty nine. I'm back on for now. We'll see how long that lasts. But. Um, this is a, uh, this is, let's see, my Twitter. I got to scroll down, I guess, to find what I'm looking for here. Um, let's see here. Oh, there it is. Uh, that's not it. Nope, 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 nope. Pictures of the Adirondacks, pictures of the men's retreat. Here it is. Okay, someone sent me this on, what, Saturday night, maybe? Friday night? I don't remember. He said, and it's these proposed memorials for the CREC which is a, a you know reformed denomination. Now, in the CREC is kind of broad. You could be Pado baptist you could be Credo-Baptist. Um, you, could, you could be Federal Vision and be in the CREC. I mean, it, it's kind of uh, broad. But theologically, that is. But they want to clamp down on something. And these would be binding memorials. It's kind of like a resolution in the SBC. But in the SBC, resolutions aren't binding. It's like a, an overture in the PCA. Um. And, and I did not know, I didn't realize, I found out since then, I guess Doug Wilson had <laughs> wrote like three of these or two of these. And I, I did not know that at the time. So um, I did not realize I was critiquing something Doug Wilson had written, but, uh, but here we go. You know, we're equal opportunity here. Um, I'm just going to give you my opinion. Doesn't matter who it is. Uh, I'll read these for you and then I'll give you my take because my take is very simple. Here are the proposed memorials that would be binding. So in other words, you can kick out a church for, you know, being outside the scope on this. Uh, Knox and Hus Presbyteries have proposed these memorials. Number one, there's three of them on ethnic balance on ethnic balance. It's, it's kind of an odd term, but okay. We believe the human tendency to congregate around shared affections is natural and can be good. It creates the blessings of cultures and subcultures, for example, but as with all natural goods in a fallen world, there is a temptation to exalt it to a position of unbiblical importance thus making it an idol. While an ethnic heritage is something to be grateful for and which may be preserved in any way consistent with the law of God, it is important to reject every form of identity politics, including kinism, whether malicious, vainglorious, or ideologically separatist, segregationist. Now, you know, the, the, the first thing that stood out to me when I read that was, I was like, I, don't, I didn't think kinism was identity politics. It wasn't like, like it's not a political thing, I didn't think. Could it become that? I guess. I mean, it's I, I, I thought it was more of a like 
personal kind of thing, but okay. Maybe Doug Wilson knows something I don't, and we'll just, we'll give him the benefit of the doubt there. And, um, that kinism is a form of identity politics of some kind. Now, one of the things, and this is probably a discussion for a later video is when we talk about identity politics, um, in one sense, all politics is actually identity politics. That's actually one of the, the things that the left kind of understands something. I think the right now has a hard time understanding because we're so much of the institutional right is committed to a neutrality, neutrality in religion and culture. Public square needs to be just kind of equal and, 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 and neutral. And so anything that would come in and say, I represent these people who identify this way, right? Um, you know, that's, uh, I, I guess you could say that that's identity politics, but what happened in the seventies was you had the left coming in and their identity politics was basically let's, let's get all the, you know, the, the, the black revolutionary types together, like black Panthers, let's get them together with the feminists. Let's get them together with the anti-war coalition, like all these different coalitions. And we'll be able to outnumber the majority of kind of heritage Americans or just, you know, decent, ordinary American conservative types. And we'll be able to outvote them. That's kind of like the, the, the thinking of identity politics. And so once I, the Democrat gets into office, he's got to hand out his favors to all these different groups, right? This is kind of like the boss system uh, of politics in New York. And, you know, conservatives want to instead cater to everyone. We're going to do something that's good for everyone, right? We're, we're, our policies are good for everyone, including uh, racial minorities. And look, and now it's even like, hey, well, our policies are even good for, you know, gay people. It's just universally good because that's what we believe in. Um, but I think one of the things this fails to recognize is that the people who are interested in that kind of a thing in some, some universal good for everyone of, in all the world, those kinds of people are actually in a certain group themselves. Um, some people call them global Gnostics, but you know, whatever, that's a kind of not a favorable name, but whatever group you want to, whatever label you want to describe is irrelevant. They're in a group. And so they they actually you you could even say that advocating for that for their group's preference on this is almost a form of it could be considered a form of identity politics. So depending on how broadly or narrowly you view identity politics, it's it's a hard word to use. You have to define it, and and there's certainly negative uh, versions of that that are intended to break up the identity of the nation. But there are which is, which is what the left has done. But those who want to fight back against that by restoring the nation to its founding principles and to its own identity, its Anglo-Protestant identity or whatever, you know, those people uh, who, who want that core, that core understanding that gave us our Constitution and Bill of Rights and all of that, you know, they are now being accused of, of in some quarters of engaging in, uh, in identity politics. So, so I, my opinion on this first thing is just that it's too, it's, it's vague. It's general. It's just, it's not helpful. And especially if you're making this a rule that if you engage in every, in a form of identity politics, which could include kinism and, and, and words like vainglorious, I mean, this stuff is so, it, it, it it's so general. It's so broad that, um, it, it's, it's just very, it's very hard to fight against those charges. If you have people in authority making them, and in their minds, they mean one thing and you mean something else. There's just going to be a lot of confusion. Um, Knox Presbytery, again, on anti-Semitism. I guess there's a second one Doug Wilson wrote. We believe the con conver conversion of the Jews is key to the success of Christ's great commission and is incumbent upon us to pray and labor towards that end. While apart from Christ, the Jews are, as all others, alienated from God. They have remained an object of God's care. 
because the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable, God's plan for converting them is for them to see Gentile nations under the blessings of Christ's lordship, thus leading them to long for the same. Hence, the cancerous sin of anti-Semitism has no place in God's plan. Okay, another buzzword, though, anti-Semitism. What do we mean by that? That's part of the problem. I just told you what the ADL means by it, right? If you're just a Christian, you're an anti-Semite, right? Apparently, Nazis get a pass if they're fighting for Ukraine. So, so how does this work? Exactly. This is part of the problem. You have to come up with extensive definitions for these things. Um, and I'll get to the main problem, I think, in a minute. All right. The last one uh, is, I don't think this one's by Doug Wilson. Um, it, it's uh, by Hus Presbytery. We believe God made all nations from one man, Adam. These nations were, were surrendered by sin, but God, by the cross of Christ and the outpouring of his Holy Spirit at Pentecost, has and is reuniting and reconciling the nations, drawing them into one church, the body of Christ. We therefore detest and repudiate all forms of nationalistic and racial hatred. Okay. Um, prejudice, segregation, discrimination, and persecution, including anti-Semitism, white supremacy, kinism, oikophobia, and critical race theory. We seek to unite the nations in the worship of the triune God, sanctifying all people's languages and customs to his glory. I think this is the worst one, to be honest with you. It because it throws out a number of buzzwords, a number of things we're used to hearing from the left, and it doesn't define them. And this is supposed to be enforceable so that you can get kicked out of the denomination if you violate it. So what I said was, I'm told these memorials, if accepted by the CREC in an upcoming council, are binding on CREC churches. Notice how vague in general so much of the language is. Why not? This is my proposal. <laughs> something like this, we condemn using race as a justification to sin against someone or anyone. Wouldn't that be easier? And I think it would. And that's, this is one of the things that, that that's actually very specific. You, you might think it's general, but it's very specific because whenever someone starts sinning against someone and in, in, in the Bible defines what sin is, you can find chapter and verse and say, you're doing this. Now your motive could be, because it, it's justifiable because that person is of another ethnicity or another race, but it's not justifiable because you're still sinning against them. Right. So you're using this, this fake justification to do so. That would be sin. That would be biblical. And that's all I was saying was like, why not something as simple as that? That, that kind of, doesn't that cover everything. And so Doug Wilson said um, easier, but it wouldn't, wouldn't do the job and no need to put memorials in quotation marks. It is our word for them. So I, I, I should probably clarify. I didn't mean, I wasn't meaning anything disrespectful by putting it in quotation. I just thought for those who are uninitiated to memorials, they would, um, I don't know. I don't know why I put it there. They, they, they just wouldn't know what that meant. It wasn't a slam. But um, so I asked, why wouldn't that do the job? I haven't received an answer, but that's fine. Um, I, but I think Doug Wilson actually did a, a whole blog about or a blog about this yesterday. But the blog, I read it. It was mostly just a defense of Moscow, of, of his church, of himself. Um I don't know. I mean, he says there's odd things in it, too. Like he talks about like, you know, I don't know if this was a slam at Baptists, but we need to be funding Baptists who are doing good work in developing Baptist political theology like Scott O'Neill and Andrew Walker. And I'm just like, OK, so not not uh, not myself or Joel Webin or, you know, Josh Abatoy or William Wolf or no, apparently Scott O'Neill and uh, and uh, and Andrew Walker. They're the, they're the people doing. So I don't know if that was, I mean, look, if I was a Presbyterian trying to persuade Baptists to join me, I would put those two as the thought leaders and say, those are the thought leaders you guys have. But, but, but the whole thing was, was basically a defense of 
um, what they're doing of the offense of these memorials. It didn't satisfy me. I don't think it, it really, um, it's clear to me that there's some kind of a problem and I'm, I might be somewhat un uninitiated into this. I have friends in the CREC though. And, uh, and what I'm hearing from them is that essentially there's, there's a concern that there's certain individuals, I guess, in certain churches that have very unsavory views and on, I guess on, on Jews and, 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 I don't know exactly what, but that's the impression. And the, one of the, the problems I see is that this isn't being brought up in a specific case by case basis, uh, really. Um, it, it's like, here, here's, here's art, you know, here's exhibit A, here's exhibit B, here's exhibit C. This is what we're trying to uh, combat. And, and how do we do that? How do we come up with language? Uh, you know, the, let's identify it as sinful and then come up with language to uh, guard against it. That's that's not what I see happening, at least publicly. I'm sure it's it must be happening behind the scenes, but I don't know who. I don't know who or where this is happening. I have no clue. Uh, it supposedly is, though. It's this great threat. So hypothetically, maybe it would be a, a valuable discussion to have. What if, so this is a what if, you did have a problem with people in your church who um, were, and I'm not going to use the, the term the left uses, um, but they thought it was we could sin against Jewish people. We'll we'll take Jewish people for an example. Because they've oppressed us somehow or they've you know the justification is that they're disproportionately represented in the higher echelons of society and socially engineering us uh and uh, so so we should be able to identify our enemy and lash out against them and lashing out means uh I don't know we're we're going to you know try to pass laws. I mean who who's even talking like this but this is hypothetical land passing laws uh, that will pre prevent them from getting into positions of authority. Right. Uh, and um, if they're Jewish, that is. And so th there's a discrimination of a, of a kind there for our own self-preservation. Uh, and and th this, this, of course, I, I keep having to say it's hypothetical because, you know, someone's going to try to rip this out of context and say, these are my views or something, which they're not. Um, but, you know, if some if someone went down that road, right, and, and their whole thing was um, trying to strip someone of their citizenship or their or or even just the basic um, decency that all humans should be treated with, uh, who who are in a country. Not saying that there are differences, by the way, between people in other countries and people in a country and people in other houses and people in your house. And pe these are all distinctions that must be made. But if you have people who are your fellow countrymen who have been here, who are working alongside you and you want to start now taking things away from them based on this, you know, you're justifying it based on this, this, this logic over here, how would you address that? Right. And, I, and this is me giving an extensive amount of benefit of the doubt, because I don't even know if this is the scenario. I'm just trying to come up with the most, the best possible case for doing these memorials, which I think that would be it. Why wouldn't it be better? to just keep it in biblical categories, to just say, if you're sinning against someone and you're using anything racial as the justification to do so, we will disfellowship you for that because we don't believe you should sin against someone. Then you have to do the work. And this is where I think more work probably should be done. If this is indeed the scenario, you have to do the work of making the argument that the Bible specifically forbids these kinds of things. Or that in principle, at the very least, these kinds of things 
are um, against you know, the biblical teaching. So that takes some that takes exegesis, that takes work, that takes debate. It's not gonna, you're not you're not seeing any of that though in these memorials, in my humble opinion. Uh, you'd have to have like a, an extensive commentary, I, I suppose, on the memorials to even try to get there. So why not just ditch the words that the left uses as hammers against us? Don't hand them that tool because then they'll use it as hammers against us uh, more. They'll they'll use it against people who don't even advocate not beliefs that aren't sinful, but they'll because the left has framed it that way we're, we're existing and working and living in their framing why not just use the biblical framing that's my whole argument that's it i have nothing else to say about it other than that use the biblical framing and words have meanings of course the bible wasn't written in english so we're going to have to use english words but when you're using the english words be very careful so someone came to me at the retreat over the weekend and was like what word do we use do we use do we try to reclaim racism do we use um like Rhett Koppel just use um partiality, racial partiality. I mean, I, sin, sinful racial partiality. I think that's that's a step better, sinful partiality. But I, I think even in James, I mean, what it's talking about is basically people who come in who are rich, you give them the best seats because it benefits you. It gives you clout, it gives you money, you know, that kind of thing. And and so it's not even, it's not, you, you can't really apply that to, like I hired someone who, uh, who I was part of my in-group and I wanted to hire them, you know, I guess because I have, they were my family. They're my brother. <laughs> I want to, I provide for them. And so, yes, I did. I discriminated, but it's because, you know, I, I have the freedom to do so. And I was actually trying, I, I feel like that's a responsibility I have. Like that's not sinful partiality. Right. So, so what is sinful partiality? It, it's, it's doing something like that when it's in the, and it's very specific. It's in the context of the church to um and the ground is level at the foot of the cross so it's it's introducing a hierarchy to benefit yourself in the context of the church so yeah i mean that, and that's where the woke people they wanted to bring all this into the church which was part of the problem so so i'm okay with using that term but i, I think you just you have to even there's even dangers with that you have to to be careful there um I, i'm comfortable just saying a mouthful you know i i think what i've often said is racial insensitivity i think i've just by default picked up that term because it just kind of covers the gamut and, and, it, and it defines it on the basis of what the left thinks so it's if it's if it's insensitive to the left it's racial insensitivity but if you just say sinning against justifying your sin on the basis of race or using race to justify sin that's evil but good that we can all gather around that as christians keep it biblical right and that's what it would do. So um, I, I don't really, I, I think this is a work in progress. I think this more discussions need to be had about this, how to flesh this kind of thing out and make it more simpler. I'm, I'm hopefully making an attempt to get the ball going here by suggesting that kind of language, but not, and I'm not even in the CREC. I'm just saying in general, but the, these resolutions or, or memorials rather, they, they would have to be, I think, rewritten. And hopefully they will be rewritten. Hopefully the language will be tightened up. Hopefully it'll be better. And and I don't, you know, I have no knowledge of what's going to happen. But um, I, I I should say this. I someone did tell me, reach out and say that they thought they they had a, evidence that this might these things would be tweaked somehow. But but I don't know what that's going to look like. So anyway, um, that's my two cents on it. I'm going to get to the questions now. Uh, for $20, and I'm sorry, John Carter, I didn't get to this now. What's happening to Stephen Wolf shows that there's no point in denying accusations of kinism, racism, anti-Semitism, neo-Confederacy, etc. They take your denial and further condemn you for lying and concealing your true beliefs. Yeah, 
So anyone, th this is what we have to do. This came up last night in the discussion of no en enemies to the right, because Neil Shenvey was trying to make, I, I thought it was hysterical. I apologize if people find that offensive, but it was just, I, I was like, he can't be, he can't be aware of what he's saying. Neil Shenvey tried to make the case at one point that because the left, like CNN's going to use the, the real neo-Nazis to smear you, they're, they're going to have the camera time, then we have to gatekeep them. Like we have to like, like let, let the world know that we condemn them just like the world condemns them. We condemn them too. And, and that's part of, um, you know, that, that's, that will apparently purify our movement and save us some hassle and that kind of thing. And, and the first thing, like, as he was saying, it, I was like <laughs> that he, the problem is you're existing within the left's framing during that entire exercise, right? You're reinforcing the left's framing during that entire exercise. Um, what you need to do is train your people to ignore the left. So if the left is going to lie about you, what you do is you say, don't ever trust CNN. Oh, no, because it's not like it's a neutral. You're assuming like there's this neutral platform, like CNN's a neutral media platform and people are going to be persuaded. No, it's not. Not e Fox isn't even. Train your people to not accept those sources as anything legitimate. Don't believe anything they say uh, when, it, when they're talking about a conservative or a Christian. Just don't believe it. That's the way you deal with that. You don't deal with it by playing into their framework and condemning harder the, those same neo-Nazis. No, ignore them because they're irrelevant because they're, they don't tell the truth. That's what you do. So um, that's my answer to this uh, question from John Carter. Essentially, um, you, you don't you don't exercise all your energy on denying these things. Uh, I, I think it's helpful once in a while to just say these people are liars. But that's the only that's why that's why you deny it. Um, yeah. You know, Owen Strawn at this point, he's just repeating lies. Um, Justin Taylor's repeating lies. Right. It's OK to say that, like these people are repeating lies because they're they're mischaracterizing. And that's the point of saying it. It's not to you know, get, and I'm not, you know, I'm I'm. I, I, I'm not a neo-Confederate, quote unquote, in, in the sense of if you think that, the, you know, that I think we're downstream in the South rising again and that kind of thing. I mean, <clears throat> I'd love to see um, Southern culture kind of make a comeback in the sense of, uh, you know, increased levels of Christianity and Christian involvement, like the Bible Belt kind of gaining that boost, increased uh, interest in localism. And I mean, those are the things that I think of are, are true and valuable in the Southern tradition. Um, I think some of the, some of their cult, cultural aspects, uh, the way that they think about um, work and leisure, and you know, there, there's things like that. But but I, I know we're downstream. I know the divide is more urban rural now. I know there's Southern culture still in, in pockets in in certain places, uh, authentic Southern culture. But um, but that's not who I am. I live in New York for crying out loud. Okay, so yeah, I mean, do I do 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 I have an affinity for the Jeffersonian tradition? for the compact fact of the United States, for um, uh, solutions like secession and nullification, smaller government, um, more uh, Christianity infused in the government. If you look at the Confederate constitution, there's more checks and balances. There's more acknowledgement of God. Of course I'm for all those things. Of course I am. And I think I can defend it and I don't have any shame in that. And I'm not ashamed of my Confederate ancestors, right? Does that make me a neo-Confederate? If the other side thinks so, fine. You know, that's whatever. Um, but I'm not here 
to satisfy them. I'm not here. If they want to take their net, which is their term, and try to capture me and capture Steven with their term and capture these other people, let them do it, but put, you know, create a hole in the net. <laughs> they can put the net over you all day, but let everyone know their net is, is, is it has a hole in it. It's not a real net. These terms aren't real. This is just fake smears they throw around. These people aren't trustworthy. They're liars discredit them. And I, part of the reason I'm doing this podcast is to discredit people like Owen Strawn. Now, a week ago, I wouldn't have done it. A month ago, I wouldn't have done it. A year ago, I wouldn't have done it. I was saying things to try to encourage Owen Strawn up until very recently, because I, I knew he was kind of woke, then he was going in an anti-woke direction. And I appreciated that. But no longer can I do that. He's been given every benefit of the doubt. He's been given every benefit, every um, evidence that what he's saying isn't true. And he doubles down anyway. That's not a man with character, in my opinion, um, at all. And so, and, and, and I'm frankly very concerned about the way we didn't talk about it in this episode, but in a previous episode, he thinks of the gospel. I mean, he's tweeted out there that basically you don't have the gospel unless you have his views on race. That's insane. Um, no, you, you can have different views on race, different social arrangements you'd like to have and still have the gospel. In fact, many of the people throughout church history uh, that we know of, um, that we respect did. And, you know, I wonder if could Martin Luther, you know, or, uh, you know, John Chrysostom, would they be able to even live in the CREC if these memorials pass? No, they wouldn't. <laughs> so, you know, it, it's, it's just a sad state of affairs. And, um, and, and, you know, some of these, you know, I, I don't put Doug Wilson, by the way, in the same category as Owen Strand at all, but I, I just, I think there is a, some people seem to know what time it is and other people seem to be catching up. And, you know, I, I think one of the things going on right now with Christian nationalism, so-called, is there are some younger guys, especially, who seem to be more aware of what time it is. I'm not sure why exactly. There's some older guys who are too, but it's it seems like it's more among the younger guys. And, and my, the only way I've tried to ex understand this, that I can't understand it, is they're experiencing social breakdown in real time. Whereas people who are retired, who are shielded from that kind of thing, who have ministry jobs, uh, they're, they're not seeing that as much. But if you're, you're in a secular world, especially you, you see exactly what's going on and you're thinking of your kids. And so I think following leaders, who know, what time it is, is the important thing. Even if you disagree with certain analyses they have, if they see what's going on around them. They see how the net is encapsulating the church, is encapsulating Christians and the strategies that are being used. That's someone that's going to have a better solution because they can identify the problem. All right, we've been going mega edition here. Um, I don't know if anyone else, man, there's a lot of comments here. Uh, whew, I'm not even... <laughs> Douglas says, I'm betting Owen lives far away from the nearest ghetto. Uh, yeah, you know, I have no clue. I'm not, I, I have no clue. So I'm not going to weigh in on it, but I will say this about people like David Platt and others who talk a lot about racial injustice. They do tend to live far away from it, which is kind of sad. Um, see any questions, get them in now because I'm about to end the podcast. Um, having the, a, a border that's not open is sinful partiality, infinite, infinity migrants, or you're not being biblical. Why not? Right. Why not? Why can't that be that this is one of the things I've said before about Owen, you know, because because these guys will say they'll rage against their idea of what kinism is, which isn't which is so general. You could drive a truck through it. 
And then they'll say, but I want a sealed border. I want a closed border. And I've asked on what basis? Why? What's the reason for wanting a closed border what, or, or wanting border security? You know, I'm not Russell Moore. I, I, I'm not like him. I, I want the border closed. Why? You know, it's like, I, I don't know what the justification is. I guess it may, the only one you could make, I guess, is it's economically bad because you can't bring anything cultural into it. You can't say because they're different than us. I saw David Platt uh, the other day. Someone posted a clip of him making a statement about how the nations are coming here. So the Somalians, he said, are coming here. So we don't have to go to Somalia. We can witness to them here. And I thought, you know, that's curious to me because I thought as soon as you step foot on American soil or at least went through a citizenship process, you weren't Somalian anymore, right? You were American at that point. You were part of this, this proposition that all men are created equal and just as much as an American as someone who's been here for generations. But, you know, but he said, hey, they're, they're still Somalian. You're still fulfilling the task of reaching the nation. So you're not reaching an American. You're reaching a Somalian, even if they happen to be an American citizen, I guess. So it's, it's interesting. These things have not been worked out. There's just been a lot of assumptions. And, and um, it's, it's obvious to me. I mean, this is something someone sent me from, Saint, uh, from Thomas Aquinas, that a lot of nations at his, the time he was writing, it took, I think he said, two or three generations to become integrated as citizens. And I was talking to a gentleman who came to the retreat, wonderful guy from Russia. Uh, well, Ukraine, I guess. And, but he was, I think he, he was Russian and, and Ukrainian, some or half Russian, half Ukrainian. I don't remember, but he, he's moved to the United States. And he basically said, we were, we were driving and he goes, look, I'm not, you know, I'm here, but I'm not like, you know, I'm a guest. Like, he's like, I know who I am. Like I'm, I, I, I am in a community and I want to reach that. He loves his people. He wants a podcast for specifically people from uh, Russia who come to the United States. And I was giving him advice on that and stuff. And I thought it was a great thing. I didn't say, how dare you? You know, you're partial to your own people. How dare you? No, of course not. I want him to, he can uniquely reach them in ways I can't. And that's what I told him. And he said, I, he agreed. They're not going to listen to my videos, but they'll listen to his. So he's here in the United States and people who have been here for generations, he's not trying to come and, and, and tell them what to do. And, and he's, he, 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 he knows kind of how, how he fits into it. Now, as his children grow up and as his grandchildren grow up, there is something that happens kind of organically over time where they become more integrated. Now he's already pretty integrated. Um, and, and he's making strides to do that. He, I mean, he's learned the language, right? There's, there's things, there's basic things like that you do to integrate yourself into a culture and become part of it. But, but what, but during that whole process, you know, what about partiality? How does that come into play in all of this? Uh, if you care about your own people still, you know, you haven't uh, cut the cords of the country you came from completely. Um, what about, uh, I don't know, living amongst people that are like you? Is that partiality? Right, right. There's all these questions. And I don't see a consistent basis that uh, people like Owen are using to try to make these separations. Uh, Paul Howison is, is correct. If America is so racist, why are the ones complaining about it coming here in the millions? Yeah, good point. Good point. We're, we're pretty much the most open country in the entire world. Uh, so anyway, um, I'm going to probably end it there, but I, I hope this was helpful to you. At least it, hopefully it got you thinking and, uh, and, and that's always good, even if you disagree. Um, God bless. More coming later in the week. Bye now.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.